welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Due to the unprecedented times we're living in, courtesy of COVID-19, we are recording remotely. So you may notice a difference in the audio quality. What remains the same, however, is getting to know more fascinating, accomplished, creative women. Case in point, June Millington, who Guitar Player Magazine has called one of the hottest female guitarists in the industry. She's been making music for decades, ever since taking up the ukulele as a youngster in the Philippines. After moving from Manila to California in the early 60s, June joined musical forces with her sister, Jean. By 1969, their band, Fanny, signed with a major label, one of the first all-women's rock bands to do so. Fanny played with such bold-faced names as Chicago, B.B. King, Chuck Berry, Ike and Tina Turner. June left the band in 1973, but continued recording and performing with Gene and on a number of solo albums. There's more. June happens to be the co-founder and artistic director of the Nonprofit Institute for the Musical Arts, or IMA, which supports women and girls in music and music-related businesses around the world and is located on a 25-acre campus in Goshen, Massachusetts. June is also the recipient of numerous awards and accolades. In 2013, she, along with the other members of Fanny, received the Rock Girl Women of Valor Award at Berklee College of Music. Then there was the Veteran Feminists of America Award, and in 2015, she was honored for her contributions by the National Women's Festival. 2015 was also when her autobiography, Land of a Thousand Bridges, Island Girl in a Rock and Roll World was published. So let's meet and get to know this force of musical nature. June, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. (laughs) You're so welcome. Great to meet you. Happy to be here with you all. I like to go way back in time, particularly when you were a child, as I mentioned in the introduction, that you played the ukulele. How did that come to pass? Was one just lying around, or did you have musical parents? I, I All I remember is maybe one of my cousins or uncles handing me a ukulele and saying, uh, uh, this is how you tune the, the ukulele my dog has, please. And maybe <laughs> he showed me two chords or something. I, we were off and running. I mean, we didn't need really any more than that. We just started to play songs off the radio. You know, Filipinos are very musical, number one. And number two, I have kind of an uncanny ear. In fact, I only have one ear. I only hear out of my right ear. But I didn't know that until I was 13 and we moved to Sacramento. So, you know, nobody told me not to do it. So, boom, there I went. So it seems to me that this was obviously a natural act for you. That's right. That's exactly right. And it was a lifesaver. Actually, music connected me, connected us to everything. And that is not an exaggeration, everything. Is that what grounded you when you moved from one country to another country, which must have been very overwhelming? Well, yeah, you could say grounded. Um, We we didn't feel like we belonged anywhere because we're half Philippine and half American. So uh, we were bicultural when we got to the United States, of course, and we're also biracial. So... um, on an empirical level, I would say that music immediately spoke to us and brought us to a place where we were part of everything. And that's so important, you know, really for everybody. Uh, but when we got to, to the United States, we had picked up acoustic guitar. By that time, my mom got me a small handmade mother of pearl inlay 
uh, guitar. She went to the Southern Philippines the month before we left, and she got that from me for my 14th birthday. Um, I'm born in 1948. So we were playing acoustic guitar, and the officers on the ship heard me and Jean, uh, you know, fooling around, singing our Harry Belafonte songs and all that. And they asked us to sing for, for the members of the ship. And that was our first performance. And we, I, magically, miraculously, there's a photo of that that's in the book. Um, of us playing and the officers are standing around. You can tell they're really proud of us. And when we got to the U.S., the Sacramento, we really didn't know anybody. But I entered junior high and found out I was deaf. The most important thing is that I wrote a song called Miss Fla- Wallflower 62. And Jean and I, along with two other girls, sang that at the variety show. And instantly, people knew who we were. And they stopped us in the hall. They said hello. I mean, kids would just say to me, I really like your song, and move on. And that changed everything for me, for us. That was a game changer. Wow. I mean, what, you know, what kind of extremes you lived through. And continue to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I can't yeah. imagine what that uh-huh. was like for a teenager. Why did you move to the States? My dad wanted to move back. He was actually from Burlington, Vermont. He was a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy, and he went down with the Hornet and, and another ship. Um, he was a graduate of Annapolis. He was a, a genius. And, um, you know, I really looked up to him. And when I was 13, when I was about the 13, he just decided we were moving back to the States, and he um, moving to the States. He was moving back. Uh, you know, yeah. for us, it was a huge cultural shift. And No um, kidding. You know, I yeah. But I think it was a good choice, you know, because I, I'm, I'm quite sure had we stayed in the Philippines, Gina and I would have never been able to branch out and uh, express ourselves via starting a band in late 64 and, you know, expanding through funk and rock and roll and uh, everything that else that happened to us. So it was a great decision. You know, June, one of the ties that binds the women I have interviewed is the fact that there is this amazing, strong sense of self. But I think that that's a very apt description for you as well, that you felt comfortable performing or singing or doing what it was that you were going to do. And look where it's taken you. But to go back in time, don't you think that that's pretty amazing? You know, I would say yes, but I'm thinking two things as you're asking your question. Um, I I didn't really feel comfortable even talking to people, you know. So uh, that comfortableness was actually, in my view, that it's like we spotted a, a life jacket in the water and we just grabbed onto it for all we were worth. And it just so happened to be the right thing. Okay. Um, and I didn't really expand as a, as a performer per se. I mean, I must have been a good performer because we just kept going, you know, a, a, a sewing circle at the YWCA in Sacramento took us under their wing. They were sewing things and selling them and, and um, they raised money uh, for us. They got us gigs. So the, the YWCA was actually our first booking agent. <laughs> <laughs> I was so shy that I had to ask when we started to play Hootenannies, we started to, um, I in particular started to ask guys, well, how do you do this? How do you do that? You know, show me chords. And 
fortunately, there were uh, uh, enough good boys and young men by the time we got to Hollywood 69 who were happy to show me things. And I discovered, oh, I could just ask. So that was a big step for me. Um, I was so afraid, but my need to know superseded my fear. Let me say so. The performing thing came gradually, and when I ended up playing with Chris Williamson in 1960, uh, excuse me, 75 on her album Change and the Changed, and I went on tour with her on her first national tour the next year. That's when kind of everything exploded for me because she took the brunt, of course, of the performing. I could watch her extreme skill. I mean, I, I remember once I said to her, "How how do you do that? How do you?" sing in front of that many people and make them laugh and all that stuff and she said well I just pretend I'm in uh, you know a living room with like seven or ten of my best friends and I'm just singing to them and I started to work on that notion and you know it worked but now I also read about you that when you and your sister started out it was in the folk genre correct oh yeah oh yeah follow the drinking gourd baby <laughs> <laughs> you know, I say baby because we went right into Motown uh, when we started to play in a band. You know, it was nowhere to run. But my, Martha and the Vandellas, that was our, the pinnacle, you know. Well, on acoustic oh, guitar, now. not even electric. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Walk On By by Dionne Warwick. Yeah. Oh, gosh, yes. So it seemed like a natural act for you to go from folk into rock and roll I did not go right into rock and roll. I went into Motown and funk. That's not that's a misperception that people have. So tell me about what it was like forming your first band. You know, like a lot of things that have happened to me in my life, we just kind of fell into it. Gene had a boyfriend who was a bass player in a surf band. And um, us girls would tag along to their gigs, you know, and hang out. So we uh, tagged along with them to their gigs. And... Um, at finally, at some point, we asked if we could between their sets, and I remember it was a, at a, a bowling alley. So that was our first kind of band gig. And we did Nowhere to Run by Martha and the Vandellas. We did Heat Wave, you know. So I say that we did not go into rock right away, partly because it's so important that we learned how to groove with Walking the Dog, with the entire mm. Motown roster, because... Mm -hmm. You really know how to sink your teeth into the beat when you do that. You know, sure we did, uh, you really got me. Oh, you really yeah. got me. <laughs> you know, that's, uh -huh. that's really easy. But Motown is sophisticated. Rock and roll, you have to kind of learn how to really dig into three chords and make that totally happen. So we learned both. But we didn't go so much into, I mean, we did Day Tripper, that's for sure. You know, but mm -hmm. I really have to stress how important the um, funk, Motown, Stax records hits were for us to play on stage. Number one, it was during the Vietnam War. And by the way, we played at a club in Reno in 1966. So that was between my uh, graduation from high school and entering UC Davis. And when we played at that club in Reno for about six weeks, we were playing, this is 1966, we were playing for returning Vietnam vets. So wow. that's really important also to understand. Yeah, so from 66 to 69, when we ended up in L.A., we were hearing stories. We were boogalooing for these guys, and they loved it. They loved, loved, loved it. Why? I mean, 
we were these chicks who could play and we would talk to them. I mean, what was not to love? We loved every moment we were on stage. We were never accosted, you know, honestly. Uh-huh. It, it, it seems incredible now, but we were not attacked. Um, these guys loved us and they loved to talk to us. So our audiences were made of kids kind of basically our own age or just a little older. And it was the guys that talked to us. The girls did not talk to us. That's how it was in those days. The guys would come mm. forward and maybe even talk to us before we got off stage. And the girls would hang back, but we could see in their eyes how much they approved, you know? Wow. Yeah, it was all good. Did you have an agent back then? We found one. We had several. Yeah, we stumbled along. It's really important also to realize how there were no other girl bands around. You had to be a huge anomaly. Yeah, yeah. Everything kind of lurched into place for us. But the important thing is we never gave up, you know. So we'd find a manager or a roadie or somebody to hang out, you know, and they would last a while and then they'd, you know, drift off or somebody would quit the band or whatever. But in particular, Gene and I never gave up. And that's really important. It, it, it will hold anybody if it's said now because music or, or the music business, you know, full of the vagaries of, uh, you know, unexpected mm. events. So um, you, you can't expect like, to go to a job every day. You know, you're constantly having to make yourself up, you know. And, and was it difficult to marry the, the gigs with the, the college, the education part of this? And also, did you have the blessing of your parents as you kind of took off and doing your own thing? Well, we couldn't have done it without our mom because she, uh, she saw that it made us happy and she did everything she could to um, you know, make it work for us. So she went behind our dad's back to go to a music store and she signed for equipment for us, about 500 bucks, which is a lot of wow. money. Um, yeah. Especially back then. So we, yeah, we bought a bass for Gene and Amp, uh, a guitar and an amp for me and the PA, which is a big deal. Our dad was not so into because he was worried about, you know, he was worried about who was going to take care of his little girls eventually. And he was right, actually, to worry that, except we never gave up. Um, mm-hmm. But what he did was he loved to find cars or, in, in our case, a bus even and fix them up and let, let us use them so we could drive to our gigs and eventually we could drive. So I get the whole band and all the equipment in our bus, which was pretty hot. As I also said in the intro, in 69, you signed with a label, making you one of the first all-women's rock bands to do that. And then how is it that you hooked up with the bold-faced names that I mentioned? Chicago, B.B. King, Chuck Berry, and on and on and on. How did that happen? Oh, well, by that time, we had professional management. We, we definitely were hooked in. We were signed to uh, Reprise Records, which uh, became Warner Brothers, well, W.E.B., while we were with the label. And we had totally professional management. In fact, uh, uh, the guy who managed us, had, you know, had come out of New York and he was he was very well connected. He had started a, a record company called Tetragrammaton and he had put out the John and Yoko album that went out in brown bags. So uh, there was a lot of stuff swirling around us in the business that was already happening and set up. Our record producer had just produced Tiptoe Through the Tulips with um, Tiny Tim. And so he was able to sign (laughs) us. Yeah. And the important thing about that, it it was a massive hit, one. 
And number two, they saw in us an opportunity to have yet another variety show type act that maybe would, you know, put out a record or two and bring them a little success. They, they never expected us, I don't think, to, to last and keep going, but we did. So we were learning a lot about the business from our booking agents, our managers, our record company, our producer. It was a machine. We were part of a machine and we learned the ropes, you know? I mean, we uh, did interviews with not just journalists, but um, the promo men in every single city. Um, And that's important to know. We'd get off, say, at Chicago or in Indianapolis, and we'd get off the plane. There was a Warner Brothers guy standing at the bottom of the ramp, ready to welcome us and take us to the first of two or three radio stations or interviews or whatever before we even got to the venue. So we were a 24-hour band working really hard, and we understood the ropes of the business. Yeah, yeah. Did you write your own songs? Yes, we did. But we covered Hey Bulldog by the Beatles. We covered Ain't That Peculiar, you know, by Marvin Gaye. Um, mm-hmm. And the other, yeah, the other thing to know is that we also work with, um, you know, people from London. Our, our, uh, one of our PR guys had been with the Beatles. Um, and so I'm, I'm sure that's why we were allowed to record Hey Bulldog at Apple Studios and add on our own verse because um, he was connected and, you know, they must have just said, hey, yeah, we love it. The girls, you know, aren't they Oriental? You know, that's what Ringo Starr said once to our, really? uh, to our producer. Right. Yeah, he said, uh, he said, oh, yeah, Fanny, don't they have those Oriental tricks? Which <laughs> I take as a compliment because that's all he knew. Uh-huh. I mean, that was good. Uh-huh. That was good. I mean, the, uh, the only... Uh, compliment we heard the first say 10 years or so that we were together they were the spelts then we became wild honey which signed to reprise and then we became fanny the highest compliment we got was not bad for chicks and i mean that sincerely i'm not even making that up that was a high compliment and we heard that a million times you know so that was the world we lived in how did you come up with the name fanny uh, we were riding around in L.A., and I had just heard of a band called Daisy Chain, which I didn't even know what that meant, but it had the word Daisy in it. And I just, number one, I wondered who these chicks, you know, because that's what you called them these days, those days. I wonder who those chicks were. But more importantly, I realized, oh, they had a girl's name in the band. So I said, well, why don't we put a girl's name in our in our band? It was really no more than that. And Jenny got thrown into the hopper. It was one of about, you know, maybe 60 or 70, you know, wild kind of psychedelic names. And it turns out that um, somebody in, in our entourage had an aunt Fanny. And that's, that was my avatar. I, I really thought of Fanny as this woman with, uh, you know, warm milk and chocolate cookies who, who <laughs> really kind of, I stood behind her on stage because, um, I, I needed some comfort. You know, it was tough. I did not play lead guitar until uh, late in 69. Our uh, lead guitar player quit, and I had to learn how to play lead. And, and I went from zero to the solo and badge in about a year. And uh, for those of you who know what playing lead guitar is like, you know how hard that is. But I applied myself. See, that's the thing. We came from Manila. We had gone to re- the schools in which actually studying and memorizing was the key. So we knew how to study 
and I applied that to learning lead guitar, quite honestly. You just knew kind of how to drive yourself and knew you you knew what you wanted. And I think that that's so critical. And, and that only worked to your advantage. Yeah, yeah. It's the only thing that saved me, really, was I didn't want to work. And so I would sort of, I don't know, I wouldn't sort of, I would exactly tune everything else out except what were the licks I was going to work on that day. So I would learn from records, let's say, um, Rainy Night in Georgia. I learned every one of those guitar licks, which I still use today. Um, the Flying Burrito Brothers, I became... Uh, I sought out the uh, pedal steel player, Sneaky Pete. And even though it was pedal steel, I understood what he was doing. You know, I would ask guys, "How do you do that?" I became friends with Lil George and Skunk Baxter and Elliot Randall, who played the the solo on um, Reeling in the Years. You know, and they taught me not just licks, but also we would jam and we were, you know, we were creating the sound that's known as classic rock today, creating it. So we would find about some guy who was making some amp somewhere in the valley and we'd pile in a car and go go see what he was up to, you know. So it was I guess it was like people with their racing cars or something like that, you know, what tubes and blah blah blah. And Lowell came by the house one day and just grabbed me and said, We gotta go to hard hardware store. He just learned that you could take spark plug folders, which came in different sizes, come in different sizes, and they put it on your little finger and that would make a great great slide guitar. Or Bonnie Raitt showed, showed me how to make my own slides from the neck of a piss bottle, which I don't even drink, but I learned how to do it. And I used that for a long time. Homemade wow. slides. Yeah. Wow. So it was a, there was a coterie of us who were really intent on learning what had come in the past, because they were all coming through L.A. All the blues guys, all the new acts, all, everybody was coming through L.A., of course. So we were, we were making it up as we went along, and somehow we did a good job. You know, we put the two worlds together. I mean that, frankly. We put the two worlds together. Because at the Ashbro, for example, all the blues guys came and played. You know? All of uh-huh. them. All of them. Sonny Biggie, you know, Blind Lemon Jefferson. I mean, on and on. So we got the full, you know, the full transmission. I saw the PBS special. Rise Up, Songs of the Women's Movement, which obviously featured you. And I was wondering how feminism had an impact on you. Well, like I said, we stumbled into uh, a lot of things. And that was what happened with me with um, entering into the realm of women's music. But I've got to back just a little bit to say that I left Fanny at a time when it could have gone either way. We could have possibly kept going and, and really made a name for ourselves. But as it happened, we sank into obscurity for years now. Now it's being rediscovered to the delight of apparently millions around the world. But I I needed to leave because I was scared. And the, the fear was kind of nameless, but now I can say that I was afraid that I didn't, I, I was worried that I would never grow up. I would never learn how to be an authentic human being. But wow. that these, yeah, this was, uh, you couldn't really put your finger on it back at the time, but I was truly frightened. And I was frightened as much by the fact that Gene and I had worked so hard to create something in the music business, to create something musically. And we did. It was a huge, huge edifice. But I was falling apart. And it was like, 
I mean, to, to use a, a 60s metaphor, it was like being on a bad acid trip. And, okay. And um, in the middle of the desert, not knowing what's going on, all of a sudden it was really, I was standing in an unknown place and I was frightened. So, you know, you're a young woman. I, by the time we got to L.A., I think I was turning 21. So by 6, 73, when I, I quit, you know, I was just in my early 20s still. And, oh, gosh, I'm so frightened. But I, I had a talk with Gene. I said, you know, I got to go. And that was one of the hardest uh, decisions I've ever had to make. My was really tough for us both. But I had to go. So I did that. And I went to... I rented a house on the tip of Long Island in Potomac, a, a summer house in the winter. And I would take walks by the sea and I listened to a lot of Stevie Wonder, which was incredibly healing. And I would go into New York and I would go hang out with guys whom I knew, like Randall, and, and do go to jams. I met women musicians. I got invited by the band Isis to go to New Orleans to record on an album that uh, Alan Toussaint produced for them and that was an incredible experience so I, I started to uh, really investigate Buddhism and to meditate and bow to the trees so it was a very inner journey um, that mm -hmm. I went into then I met Chris Williamson from uh, he, she's basically the women's movement you know music icon uh, Changer of the Change is the big album and it still sells today I, she was a fan of Fanny's. I didn't know that. But anyway, I ended, ended up in L.A. Gene and I uh, were starting another band, which actually we were going on the road again with Fanny, which I call the Fanny Last Cap Tour. Okay. She got the hit Butterboard. Fanny had broken up and she was visiting me in Woodstock. And uh, in the middle of a snowstorm, the phone rings. It was just like a movie. And this, our manager calls from L.A. says, you know, you have a hit. So you got to come back. And because we got to make some money off of this. And I got her to the airport. I don't know how. I mean, it was a bad storm. And about a week later, she called me and asked me if I would play again in Fanny. This is all leading up to how I got engaged in women's music. Because then I ended up in L.A. I met Chris. I met Margie Adams, who spoke a lot in the movie. And I ended up playing on Changer. And we were trying to do this band thing, the new version of Fanny. And that didn't work. And. Chris had been asking me, why don't you go on the road with me? And I'm like, oh, no, you know, I mean, quite frankly, I thought it was going to be boring. Folk music and nothing would be really happening. And meanwhile, we we're trying to work up this big hot thing, you know, the mm -hmm. all stars. But that, that fell apart. And I ended up going on the road with her. And let me tell you, that was rock and roll. It was total rock and roll because of what was happening through the fusion of this music and the calling in of the spirits of all these women through ages who were coming in, believe me, they were there. And it was intense and it was um, mind boggling. It was earth shaking. It's everything you could think of much more than what was <laughs> described in the movie, which was really, really good. But if you were standing with Chris in 76, you were at the crossroads. You really were. It was a, uh, amazing i had never experienced anything like that before and i've seen a lot already you know yeah, yeah really really yeah i've been on stage with bb king with slade even we've done you know amphitheaters in germany with thousands of people uh 
you know, boom, 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 this German beat. We recorded, we met the Beatles, you know, the whole thing. But this was really, it was what I had been heading to the whole time, but I didn't know. I just had trusted right. that it would come. Or, yeah, right. or I would find right. it. It would, it would find me. It found me and uh-huh. changed my life. So there you are with the beginning. And 76 was ground zero, really, for AIDS. So by 80, right. you know, we were all struggling. So that is, t- you know, our the beginning of our playing live in bands was concurrent with the Vietnam War. And our uh, women's music and that social uh, change was happening concurrent with AIDS, really. So Jeez. we saw a few things. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a walking history book. You know, you really are. I, I, um, I went to the march on Washington, you know, uh, in uh, what was it, March of 2017 and or February. And I was standing backstage, believe it or not, with Angela Davis, who's the co-founder of IMA. And a Gloria Steinem, who's everything, and um, of course, one of the of women, <laughs> one of the women, Anona Hendricks, who'd been in LaBelle. She was hanging out and you kind of just playing along with everything, percussion. She was so happy. And I, I turned to them each individual and I said, You know, this happened before, right? Because see, we'd all been through the first phase, the Vietnam War, and, and by the way, EURA, you know. We all confirmed yes, that, yes, yes, and, yes. and they they confirmed it. I mean, because I didn't want to say to the kids, you know, who were in their twenties, you know, we did this before. <laughs> you want to, <laughs> you know, because it doesn't really matter. They were experiencing their epiphany, and it was like walking on air. It was like breathing champagne bubbles. It was incredible. So, you know, I felt like we were turning another page, and now here we are. Uh, the time of coronavirus and we we're turning another page and nobody knows what the future holds but music is always the key music holds it all so it will hold your lament i know and music soothes us and heals us and calms us and to that end the connection prompted you to co-found the institute for the musical arts and i'd like you to talk about that well around um 1986 I started to uh, hear voices. I mean, I do hear messages. And that that had started at a meeting in L.A. in 1976 um, that was around, you know, the whole women's music movement and getting women of color involved and all that. And I I heard these voices at the time say, well, someone's got to take care of business because what they were talking about was wonderful and great, but it was a little bit not um not practical you know like nobody was going to be more popular than anyone else sort of an egalitarian uh way of thinking which of course was never going to work out because whenever money is involved um there's always going to be someone more popular than the other so anyway i was hearing those voices and 10 years later they started to come in my dreams and started to say you know really something has to happen help these help the young women of the future. And I was having a conversation with Angela Davis in San Francisco, and I told her about this. And um, she looked at me and she said, well, get started. And I'm like, what? No, not me. I mean, I am not an organizer. You know, I, I, this other thing is what I do. And she said, well, she said the only thing that could have worked with me or for me, actually. And she said, well, I'm talking to you. So get going. I'm like, oh, my God. God. Wow. So I had to take it on. I had to take it on. So fortunately, Anne uh, 
is a wonderful organizer, and uh, she studied feminism. She plays cello. She was uh, the head of the Women's Center at Hampshire College when we met. And we were together, and so the two of us just started from nothing, nothing. Um, and a lot of people didn't think it, it would work because the mission was too big. It was for women music, past, present, and future, bringing it together and passing on skills, especially with giving sort of special credence to kids, uh, women of color, and, you know, who, who may not have had a lot of money. or You know, we had just these huge dreams. So it had to concretize to whatever lay before us. So we were finally able to get a grant. The women's uh, uh, building in in San Francisco was our first 501 C, uh, 501 C3 that uh, grant for us. And we just, we started in our garage in Jean's house. Actually, my sister Jean's a bass player in Fanny. She had two kids. Right. And right. we started in the garage and we started to just talk about it, talk about it, start to do a few workshops in other people's spaces, you know, like at somebody's recording studio who would let us do a workshop for, for an hour or two or whatever. Very, very, you know, humble. We had nothing. But slowly but surely, people started to hear about it. And finally, we got a grant to um, move into a performance lives living space in Bodega, California. And that's where we hit the ground running for about 10 years with workshops and shows. And one of the things I insisted was that there be an open question and answer period at every show. So uh, for example, I'm remembering Marie Moldar came in and did a show with us. She was someone I knew from back in the day when I just, that interim between Fanny and playing with Chris, she came and played and uh, boy, her question and answer period was, absolutely fantastic you know she would sneak out of the house and go into to manhattan and she went to music row and you know all, all that kind of stuff so one of the things that's really important to me is that we pass not only the information but the history on who were these women who contributed many of them unknown and that's what i pass on at our rock and roll girls camp i mean rock and roll girls camp that's just moniker you know it's a safe place for girls to gather and get life skills through music really you know and it's collaborative leadership skills it's safe we're passing it on in a way that is a direct transmission which is the only way i know to work because that's how i learned so that's what we're doing we have kids who came to the first um camp in 2002 you know graduated from college for sure we have two generations of girls who graduated from college Mm-hmm. So many of them know that they're going to be taking the helm after we're gone. So we've already tr- started th- that transitionary you know, phase. One person on our board had uh, been uh, a vice president at MIT, and I asked her to join so that she could pass on institutional <laughs> knowledge. How do you pass forward an institution? You know, it's really important. We're not just going to leave and, and have this place implode, you know. I can't imagine what it's like to be you and to reflect upon this rich and varied, powerful past. Does that give you pause when you stop, if you do stop, because you always sound like you're moving forward here? Yeah, I've stopped a couple of times. I I wrote my book, which uh, in the periods when I was really uh, remembering, and, and by the way, I think I am able to remember so many details because I don't hear in the left side and I don't have equilibrium in that side. So my 
brain hardwired in a different way. So I know that a lot of memories are stored in my body and I'm able to access them, especially through music. I mean, what I did was I would play the top 40 hits from like 1960 on and it would all come rushing. How did it feel exactly the first time I knew I was flying on electric guitar, you know, trying to describe that. Yeah. So, and I'm doing the same thing with my second book now because I had to start stop in 1975 and on my first book. So I'm picking up with women's music and the whole thing since then. And, you know, I'm the only woman that I know of or whom I know of who was at the beginning of women in rock and the beginning of women's music because uh, Chris Williamson invited me in and that was the open door, you know. So um, it's really interesting that I've been able to survive it all. And that's key. The, the fact that I'm still breathing and talking and I can pass this on to you. I can talk to the girls and say, hey, you know, uh, people, women in music who are doing, I mean, uh, the sweet, the Sweethearts of Women, for example, uh, all black orchestra, you know, starting in, I think, the late uh, 30s or early 40s, they put their lives on, in their hands going on the road. So I, this is what I talk about. This is not, you know, don't think that music is just for your entertainment. You know, a lot of people have given us the lives to do that and, and to create music that was their passion. And it and it was so real and so true that we can fall in love with it right now. And I, and I play the canon, you know, I play Ella Fitzgerald and, you know, the whole thing. And, and pass it on viscerally by playing for our PA and we'll listen, we'll dance around and so on. This is the way you do it. You have to tell the story over and over and over again. It's the only exactly. way. It's like exactly. sitting in front of a campfire, exactly. right? Um, that's what you're doing. <laughs> I just want to say that I love what I do and the opportunity to meet and get to know such fabulous, creative, passionate, committed accomplished women like yourself and that you're our history you're our past you're our present and you are our future and i honestly just can't thank you enough for who you are what you've done and for sharing it all with us june i really i really feel blessed thank you i really appreciate hearing that it's what keeps me alive in a way you know <laughs> well we're going to end our conversation with some music from june ask why and again thank you so much for who you are and what you've done and much more continued joy and success today and tomorrow thank you very much thank you i appreciate it join us for another edition of conversations with creative women i'm sandy klein there was a woman from what is we just have to ask ourselves what Isabel had to die She was shot in cold blood Have we finally had enough Of sorrow as our tears go by I feel a change flowing through Make no mistake There's so much to lose We saw the flame in her forward there's no place to hide we have to ask why all the women 
side You don't wanna hear the pain That two syllables contain It's more than life can hold inside I feel a change blowing through Make no mistake, there's so much to lose We saw the flame in her Desaparecidas Muchas valientes Han muerto Las hermanas Que lloran Que nunca se despidieron La agonía Nunca termina I feel a change Blowing through Make no mistake There's so much to lose We saw the Preguntamos por qué 